This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook undoubtedly has some of the top designers in the world working under one roof. But what does it take to be a designer there? I asked John Lax, Director of Product Design, to find out. At the base level, you have to have really good craft. You have to just be a good designer. And then you start to layer on top of it other skills. You start to layer in on top of it your ability to think about interaction. You, you do a little bit of product thinking. Is this the right feature? You have to have a little bit of user research knowledge. You work with researchers. Um, and so you start to become a better product thinker is an important thing on top of your design. So a designer is just really good at laying stuff out. That's great. But if you can't do that next level, uh, it gets hard to be a product designer uh, at Facebook. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Jopwell is looking for a lead designer. Revision Path is looking for design writers as well as a brand marketing strategist. And lastly, MailChimp is looking for the following positions. Software engineer, senior software engineer, iOS engineer, Android engineer, data engineer, data software engineer, director of product engineering, and director of mobile engineering. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts, so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. And if you're looking for more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, it's that time of year again time for our audience survey. Now, we've grown a lot over the past year and we conduct an audience survey every year to learn more about you and about what you think about the show. So to take the survey, you head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash survey. Should take you about five to 10 minutes to complete it. Plus everyone who submits the survey will be entered into a giveaway for a $100 amazon.com gift card. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash survey. The survey ends on May the 1st. Now let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Join more than 15 million people who use MailChimp to not only send emails, but to grow their businesses on their own terms. Start sending professional looking newsletters to your clients today for absolutely free. MailChimp, send better email. When you have a great idea for a project, you need to give it a great domain name. And guess what? Finding the perfect domain is ridiculously easy with Hover. Hover has over 400 domain extensions, including the classics like .com or .net. They've got niche extensions like .design or .tech. And they've got quirky extensions like .pizza, .ninja, and .horse. And you know, once you find your domain, you can use Hover Connect 
to easily set it up with a number of different services, Squarespace, Tumblr, etc., with just a few clicks. So find a domain name for your idea today, go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's hover.com forward slash revision path. Hover, domain names for your ideas. SiteGround's hosting services are crafted for personal business or enterprise projects. So whether you're building something custom or you're using a CMS like WordPress, SiteGround lets you build better, faster, safer websites more easily, and they offer multiple hosting options that your websites can grow into. And we've got a fantastic deal for you. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash provision path and you can get 60% off on all hosting plans. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Janelle Allen, a learning designer in Chicago, Illinois. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Janelle Allen. I am a learning designer or what most people have heard as an instructional designer, and I create online courses. I also help entrepreneurs, particularly solo entrepreneurs, learn how to apply a framework to create their own courses with less overwhelm. Now, we've had a lot of different types of designers here on the show, you know, digital designers, UX, graphic, web, you know, et cetera, even have had presentation designers or people that just build out presentations and keynotes and things like that. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what is learning design or instructional design, as you mentioned, like what is it? And <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people have no idea what it is. So that's why I've gotten in the habit of not saying instructional designer and just saying learning designer because they can kind of wrap their heads around learning. But essentially, you know, whichever term you want to use, instructional design is about studying how people learn, particularly how adults learn and using all of that learning theory to well, applying that theory to create online courses and other learning products. So it could be courses, it could be in-person classes, it could be training, but that's essentially what an instructional designer or a learning designer does. How did you get started in that field? That's a long story, Maurice. So I got started, I guess the very first part of it was when I was in college, I worked at Starbucks and I was recognized to help with training. And I, that was my very first start. That was my starting point into helping people learn. I always had a knack for helping people learn how to do something. And I really enjoyed it. That was the very first time I had been exposed to that type of formal approach to learning. I became a learning coach at Starbucks. And then after that, after college, I worked at Apple. And I also just kind of got involved in helping people to learn how to use Apple's products and software and all of that good stuff. And so, you know, when I was kind of in that in-between space of figuring out what the next step was, I was a geek who kind of at the after working, I would go home and teach myself how to build websites and how to do a little graphic design. And I found out about instructional design. And the thing that I loved about it is it kind of merged all three things. So it merged studying how people learn and applying that and helping them to grasp information. And it also, when you look at it from the development side of building online courses and e-learning, it definitely fed that passion that I had as well. So that's how I got into it. I, I went and I got a master's degree in instructional design at Georgia State University. And that's been it ever since. And you got your, your undergrad at Georgia State too, right? 
I did. Yeah. I studied creative writing and African-American studies at Georgia State and minored in French. Nice. <laughs> so I, I I mean, I'm here in Atlanta as well. That's where the you know revision path is based. Uh, we kind of went oh. to college at like right around the same time. I was at Morehouse kind of okay. at that time, like 99 to like 03-ish gotcha. around that time. Do you feel like Georgia State kind of really helped prepare you once you got out there in the working world? I did not feel with my undergraduate degree, I did not feel very prepared to go out into the world. In fact, afterwards, I just was kind of swimming and figuring out, okay, what do I do? I'm, I'm quote unquote, an adult now. I'm supposed to have this figured out, but I have no idea. However, the experience with my graduate degree was completely different. It was just a 180. And I felt so prepared for getting out there. It was the structure of knowing exactly what I was going to do, being in my field, working with people. I felt incredibly prepared during my graduate program. Do you also think that maybe it was kind of just taking some time off from school? Like, because you went to graduate school, you didn't go right after undergrad. You kind of had some time off where you worked. Then you ended Mm -hmm. up going back. Did that help as well? No, I just, I was a bad, (laughs) (laughs) I'm keeping it real. I was a bad undergraduate student. I just didn't like, you have the the core classes and all of that. And I didn't like that. I didn't do well until I got to my major classes. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that the thing about grad school that worked for me is I didn't have to sit through all of that other stuff. Yeah, I could just go directly to the classes and I knew like I'm interested in learning this material. And so that was amazing for me. I mean, I wish I could have had just gone straight to graduate school or had a similar experience in undergrad. So that's that's really what it was. I didn't have to deal with two years of of sitting through classes that I was not interested in. Uh, that yeah, I was a bad I was a bad student. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but I mean, so you know, to to take it to graduate school, then you kind of focused. You said it was on instructional design. What kind of things are you learning when you're like for people that are listening that might mm-hmm. you know kind of see where you're at and want to go into that? What sort of topics or or things are you learning? in that program? So you start off learning about basically how people learn learning theory. So, you know, things like Piaget, Gagne's nine events of learning, the the cognitive things that happen when people learn and how people learn, Mm -hmm. constructivism, all these different theories that have to do with teaching people and making sure learning is happening and how to recognize when learning happens. So you start off with the theoretical part of it, Another component of the program is the application of it. So taking that knowledge and building, whether it's e-learning or job aids or online courses, but applying it to create learning products based on that theory. So that's the second tier. And I would say the third part of my program, I'm not sure if they've, they've changed it since then, is learning how to take that information and then in the workplace, apply it to things that are more training related and may not necessarily be online courses or e-learning, but helping people to accomplish things within the workplace. So it was those three elements. So for people that are are learning that they're not necessarily going like right into doing what you're doing, they could be trainers somewhere. Yeah. I like that you have had sort of went back and did the work to teach this because what I think we see a lot of now and certainly I think for people that are listening will know this. There are so many, I don't want to say hucksters. Let me not say that. 
there's so many people out there that are selling courses and solutions. And of course, there's software solutions that make it pretty easy for you to build your own course. And they don't have a clue behind the methodology yeah. behind learning. Like you went and, and did the work and learned the formal techniques and things. And I, do you think that sort of gives you a leg up over over others? Yes and no. So there's a lot of things. You ask great questions. There's a lot of things going through my mind right now. The first thing I want to say is for anyone out there who's listening and they're thinking, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. I'm interested in learning more about that. I took an unconventional route after grad school. I did do some consulting. I worked for some companies like Potbelly Sandwich Works, Pearson Education. I did some of the traditional stuff of going through and working with corporations and building that type of stuff. But I also, at the same time, I was blogging on the side. Okay. And I started to see people who were creating online courses. So that ties into what you just asked me. There are a lot of people who are teaching others how to create online courses and they don't have any understanding of how to make sure people learn. Mm -hmm. And they may even have very low completion rates in their own courses and, and low engagement rates. However, that being said, what I realized coming from my world as, you know, working as an employee in learning departments to then running my own agency as an instructional design agency and then now helping entrepreneurs is Online learning is different in each of those environments. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about entrepreneurs who are looking to create online courses, a lot of them are very interested in just focusing on how do I market my course? How do I make money? So to come back to your question, I feel that, yes, I do have a background that differentiates me. However, there's also a lot of people who may or may not be interested in learning, you know, how to structure your course so that it, it gets the learning results that you promise. Mm -hmm. So there's something for everybody is, is basically the long and short of it. Some people are going to be interested in, in what I have to share. And some people just want to learn about the marketing stuff. I see what you're saying. Yeah, certainly, you know, and people that listen to the show know this, there was a time where I was heavy into the online courses, like learning and through things like Creative Live and other kinds of platforms. I was just signing up for these courses. And, you know, in hindsight, <laughs> didn't really learn a lot. Yeah. Didn't really learn a lot. And, I mean, part of that is, I mean, it's the individual. It's just how how you learn in, in online environments is different because there's just so many different types of platforms. Some are video only. Some are audio only. Some are a mix of the two. Some have a forum. Some have live chat. So, like, they're so different from course to course. And it's it's hard to, I guess, sort of keep that engagement going. I like what you said, though, about, you know, sometimes they're not really concerned whether or not you're finishing the course, because there's I've probably got like a dozen courses I've signed up for. <laughs> I mean, not even past lesson one or maybe lesson two in some of them. But I mean, like yeah. I, I just haven't gotten that far. It was more to me like the allure of yeah, I'm going to have this knowledge and I'm going to do it as opposed to the time to actually go through it and make it happen. So it's more like they're selling you a product less than teaching you a skill, if that makes any sense. You know, it's funny and definitely not to downplay or, or, or talk about anyone, but I started Zen courses as a direct result of questions 
that I got from people who had taken a $3,000 program and were not, they, they still didn't know what they, what they were doing. Mm-hmm. I was getting emails and, you know, I thought, okay, at first I, I tried to work one-on-one with those people and it kept coming. And I realized that I, there needed to be something else. And that's actually what precipitated me starting Zen courses, the blog where I, I now share information on, on how to create a course that gets learning results. So it's a combination, you know, you definitely need to learn how to market as an entrepreneur. You are everything, Mm -hmm. you you know, you create the content, you market the content. So you need that. But the whole other side of it is you also have to create a course that delivers results. So, yeah. Yeah. Because if, if your course isn't getting results, people are going to stop buying it. They're not only going to stop buying it, but you won't get those raving fans and you won't get testimonials so that the next time you launch, you won't have any social proof. There's all these reasons that it makes sense. It's not just about, you know, doing the work and and taking time out of your schedule. It's also about the long term vision of building that fan base and getting people results so that they can go on and rave about you and, and your business can grow. Let's talk about Zen Courses. You mentioned it's a blog, but I mean, but it's also it's a podcast. It's it's a bunch of things. Can you kind of talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So Zen Courses, I launched Zen Courses in, I want to say, July of 2015. I didn't do much with it until December. So I kind of tell people in my mind, December of 2015 is when I really started to get serious. I was still running my agency when I launched it. As I said, it came about as a result of people who had found me. They knew me from my blogging days and they found out I was an instructional designer and they would send me questions about courses. So I started Zen Courses as a way to answer those questions for more people than just the ones who were emailing me. And essentially, Zen Courses is where solo entrepreneurs can go to get past the overwhelm or at least manage the overwhelm of building an online course and learn how to get learning results, how to strategically create their course. And I do also sprinkle in, you know, marketing information as well. There's a podcast, The Zen Courses Show, which is on iTunes. And I also offer some consulting services through the site. And how has business been going so far? It's been going well. You know, when I started Zen Courses, I tell people all the time, I was running a business. And so I didn't really think about I think I just wrote my newsletter about this. I didn't think about it in terms of it being a business itself. I literally didn't start to think about that until last year. So it's been that is a whole different mindset and a whole different can of worms when you start to turn what you just started as a hobby you know, you start to turn it into a business, but it's been going well. I'm, I'm in the middle of a course launch right now. Like I said, I just started offering services on the site and doing well. Let's talk a little bit about mindset. Uh, there's a lot of designers kind of, you know, fellow creative types, developers, et cetera, that listen to the show that have this, you know, kind of specialized set of skills. Can you sort of talk to them, you know, just in general, you know, What would be the benefits for them to create a course? Yeah. So if anyone hasn't noticed, we are in an education economy. There is a lot of emphasis on not just training, but what I call just-in-time learning, 
online courses, essentially taking information that you have and sharing it with others. There's an entire economy around that. And so for anyone out there who might be listening and they have expertise in an area and are maybe wondering how they can start to either create additional income on the side or just to build a platform for themselves and for their brand, education is an amazing way to do that. You know, there's a lot of different ways that you can go about it. You can create courses, you can do workshops, you can teach in person. There's really tons of opportunities out there. And I think that for anyone who is interested in pursuing their own thing and taking their career to the next level, you've got to be leveraging this education economy. It's a no brainer. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. When I started my studio in 2008, it was just a you know design studio doing web design, graphic design, etc. And for me, I don't feel like my career took off until I started teaching. And yeah. by teaching, it was, I taught online. I taught some courses through Media Bistro. I taught some courses through DeVry. I did in-person kind of trainings and stuff with nonprofits. And I think it was that that sort of in-person, sometimes in-person, even virtual, but it was that teaching experience, I think, that really started to kind of expand what I do outwards. I mean, even with this podcast in some shape, form or fashion, mm -hmm. it's education through interviewing and with talking with people and kind of getting the word out about what other folks are doing. So I certainly agree with you there on how it can help build that platform. I don't think I would be where I am now if I didn't start with doing teaching back in like 2010. It's would, a great different. Sorry for interrupting. It's no, a, I just want to say it's a great differentiator. You know, one of the things about running your own business or being a freelancer or starting something on the side is you're going to have other people who are doing things that you're doing. So what you have to do is to figure out what makes you different. And there is a huge boost in credibility and authority when you start to teach, when you start to put yourself out there, you know, whether, like you said, your podcast or you have online courses or you're teaching workshops, that is a huge differentiator. It's a, and like I said, it's a, just a great boost in, in people seeing you as an authority. Yeah. And it, it also helps, I think, you know, and, and to kind of put a finer point on it. I mean, when we see people that are in this space that are doing these courses, they generally are not people of color, certainly not really black people, at least not from what I've seen when it comes yeah. to courses about digital things, about design or marketing or stuff like that. And so I think from that visual standpoint, it's important so people can see like, hey, this is someone who looks like me that's doing this. Maybe this means I can do it, too, because for me, and I'm, I'm totally speaking personally, I'm not saying this is for anybody else, but when I was heavy in that fog of buying courses and signing up for courses and just having all these courses and knowledge. None of these were people of color. Yeah. Part of me, you know, in the back of my mind was like, I don't know if this is going to be attainable for me, you know, black guy in Alabama, as opposed to, I'm sorry, not Alabama, black guy. In Alabama. <laughs> I'm from Alabama, but you know, yeah, I don't know if that's going to be attainable for me versus like this white guy in New York that's got this network of people that's able to put something out and 5,000 people will, respond to it, you know? Yeah. Representation is huge. I always think about when I first started to get into entrepreneurship, when I was in college, 
Well, in grad school, I started a copywriting business. And before I started that business, I went to a seminar. And I remember being in the seminar it was a middle-aged white guy who had launched a few companies. And I remember sitting there and the point came when he started to talk about funding. And he said, if you need money to start your business, just ask your parents. (laughs) And I was too shocked. Like I was immediately just everything went off Mm -hmm. because that was just privilege in its finest moment. The assumption that every person can do that. You know, his father was a doctor and, you know, he had all of the different everything that you can imagine as far as the advantages of being able to start a business and have startup funding. But, you know, for a lot of people, people of color and people who aren't of color, that's just not possible. And so, you know, tying that to representation and seeing a lot of people who are pushing online courses and not seeing someone like yourself, that is huge. You know, I know that people have emailed me and said, you know, you're the one of the few people of color I've seen doing this. So that definitely is a big part of it. Yeah. I've had both Kronda Adair and Tamala Huntley on the show, and they kind of spoke both, you know, to those things as well about how that representation is important. Kronda specifically said that she wanted to do this because, and she focuses mainly on WordPress. Yeah. uh, But she mainly wanted to do it because she didn't see other people like her in the space doing it. And she knew that she had the expertise to talk about this, had spoken about it at different conferences and was like, I need to get out there and kind of do this myself. And she went through and did the work and created her courses and launched and everything. So yeah, that representation is certainly important for me. The turning point of stopping doing all those courses was I was watching, I was watching some course and the guy was talking about sort of hiring virtual assistants and hiring workers and stuff. And the way that he sort of categorized like entire countries of people, like they were animal breeds, was like, oh, well, you don't want to use the Indians because they're they're kind of surly and lazy. What you want to go with are the Filipinos because they're hardworking and industrious. And I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Am, am, I, am I hearing this correctly? Like as a black man, as a person of color, are, are you serious? That to me was like, you know what? I can't, I want to pick whoever's going to be good for the job. I'm not thinking I'm going to rule out an entire country of people because of one or two bad experiences like that is oh my god that's what got it for me Mm. it was also because i know that that also came from a place of privilege to even say that without compunction without any sort of irony or sarcasm or anything just yeah you don't want to use them you want to go with them because these you know they're just better this whole country of people is just better and it completely kind of just shocked me out of doing that Yeah. Online business is just a microcosm of society. I mean, you're going to have the sleazeballs. (laughs) You're going to have, you know, that's the only way to put it. You're going to have the people who are prejudiced or racist or sexist, and you're going to have the people who are genuine and actually give a damn. And it's just about wading through and finding someone that you resonate with and sticking with them. So it's definitely out there. The stuff that you're saying, I've I've heard other stories, so it's definitely out there. What are the best types of clients for you to work with with Zen Courses? 
So it's interesting because, as I said, I just started offering services on Zen courses. And I know you checked out both of my sites. I still have my consulting site up. So right now I'm kind of in this in-between space. With Zen courses, I work with primarily solo entrepreneurs. So I tend to work with people who may typically they have something that they're doing full time. So one of my clients that I just wrapped up with, he's a a student loan lawyer, Mm -hmm. but they're building, they want to build a course and start to generate some recurring revenue on the side. So what they really struggle with is needing someone to take a look at what they have and point them in the right direction as far as getting the content. So that's the main thing that I address is when you work with me through Zen Courses, I'm going to help you get your course done. I'm not going to just talk to you about marketing and sales. We're going to help you actually do the work because that seems to be the stumbling block for a lot of people of actually getting the course done. So those are the types of people who come to me through Zen Courses for that one-on-one help. I also tend to work with small business owners through Zen Courses, and I have a service called a course map where They usually already have content, but they're either thinking of changing the course or they're preparing for releasing the course and they need someone to go through and apply instructional design principles and strategies to their content and get it organized so that they can then build it out. Now, I'm sure you, you know, because of the work that you do, you're familiar with a lot of different courses and things that people do in terms of marketing tactics and things like that. Is there something that you're seeing that people are doing in courses that you wish they would just stop doing? It's not necessarily that I wish they would stop doing, but well, actually there is something I wish people would stop doing. I I wish people would stop and and this is never going to happen, but I wish people (laughs) would stop using money as a hook to get people to buy things. There's a lot of headlines out there that will make you feel like, if you buy this course, you're going to make six figures in two weeks. And it just for most people, it just doesn't work that way. So that's one thing that always breaks my heart because I know people buy those courses. I just had a a gentleman email me and he's going to he's telling me about this three thousand dollar course he's going to buy. And I'm just thinking to myself, I hope that works out. I really, really do hope that you get a return on your investment. So that's one thing that I hope people would will stop doing, but I know it's not going to happen. But as far as online course practices, there's one thing recently that I've, I've started to see, and that is the realization that people need more structure than they think they do. And that is why self-paced courses often go unfinished Mm -hmm. because, you know, we, with self-paced courses, the onus is on us to make sure we complete it, We keep ourselves accountable. Everything is on us. Mm -hmm. And in reality, if you think about how we've learned, you know, throughout secondary school and college and all of that, there's more structure in those environments. And and I believe that people need more structure online as well. Amen to that. (laughs) When, When I was teaching at DeVry, the way that they had it structured is we had office, like the instructors had office hours. We also did like a weekly chat. We had a message board that they had to post to, I think, like two or three times a week. And I think you could easily see, you know, from there. I mean, for one thing, I think for students, you know, they have to get into a certain mindset when it comes to online learning. It's just going to be different from learning in person. So while it is something that is kind of self-directed, 
even if the structure is there, the student kind of has to be in the mindset to to want to do it, to want to finish it. But I feel like my students did well with me because I was able to reach out to them if something got, you know, if they got stuck on something or if I'm seeing a pattern in the post or if I'm seeing a pattern in their homework, I can, you know, kind of reach out to them individually and say, hey, what's going on here? Let's talk about it. So to have that structure, to have that kind of person that's holding your hand all the way through. Now, there's a another platform. I, well, I already, I've already named names, so I guess it doesn't matter at this point. But <laughs> when I was teaching with Media Bistro, it started off that way. It started off, it was very hands-on. We had weekly voice chats and video chats with the students, and I felt like it was really great. Like I felt like the students were walking away really knowing what they wanted to learn. They felt like, I think, I think, I hope they felt like I was teaching them well. I was an expert. And then eventually they switched to doing these on-demand type courses where basically the student, it's all self-paced. They mm-hmm. just sign up, they get all the lessons, and then they go through it. Whether you succeed or not, doesn't matter. Media Bistro got their money, whatever. And I saw such a dramatic drop-off just in terms yeah. of engagement when that happened. Yeah. Now, students would get all excited and sign up for the course and it, it would be the same thing that I would do. I would get excited and sign up for a course and then never get back to it or only like dibble and dabble in it here and there and not really take it seriously because there's no level of accountability. There's nothing there that says, oh, if you don't finish this, this outcome is going to happen. Yeah. Like, you know, sort of like you said, to have the accountability to do it, you also end up letting yourself off the hook. There's a shift happening right now. So what you just described is, do you know if they're still, are they still doing it that way? They're still doing it that way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What you've just described is very attractive for people who want to have quote unquote passive income. They want to just have money coming in and they want to have less overhead Mm -hmm. and they don't want to deal with, um, you know, taking the time out to work with people because that's ultimately less scalable. Yeah. And this is where you start to separate the different types of teachers or instructors. You're always going to have those people who create self-paced courses. They just want you to buy. They don't care if you finish it. That's it. Mm-hmm. But you're also going to have a group of people. And this is what I'm starting to see more of. And this makes me really happy is you have people who are finally saying, why aren't people finishing my course? You know, what's going on here? And becoming more invested in making sure that people are learning and getting the results that they promise. Mm -hmm. That's great for people who buy courses because it allows you to go into an environment that's going to help you get those results. But I think there's always going to be people who buy self-paced courses. Psychologically, our brain, I forget what the term is, but our brain does this thing when we make a decision and it always tries to make us feel like that was the right decision. Mm-hmm. So if you buy a self-paced course, even if you don't finish it, your brain is going to tell you that was a good decision, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because nobody wants to feel, you know, they don't want to feel bad yeah. about themselves or like, oh, I just wasted $3,000 or $1,500 or whatever, you know, $200 your brain is always going to try to have your back, you know? So, yeah. yeah. I honestly look at it as, oh, I'm just adding this to the reference library. Yeah. I don't know if that's even, I mean, that's probably more kind of rationalization of the the courses. 
like there's there's two parts like when you buy buying courses that don't work for you you know that's where your your brain's rationalizing Uh but the other part of this that i I don't want to confuse the two is you have to invest in your development you absolutely have to and so i just had a conversation with courtney sanders from think and grow chick if anyone knows of her but she and i talked about this you know, when you're starting out, people always tell you, oh, yeah, you can start an online business and you don't need very you need very little. That's you need less, mm-hmm. but you still need to invest in your business. You still need to. So whether that's, you know, whatever that education takes for mentorship courses, um, that's not a waste of money. If you learn something from it and it helps you to get your business and your career further, that's exactly what you should be doing. OK, well, then I feel better. <laughs> Don't yeah. that. that makes me feel better. Feel good. Feel good about that. <laughs> Where does your your passion for education stem from? I mean, I know you you describe the catalyst of of working at Starbucks and that kind of being the thing that that brought you to where you're at now. But did you always kind of have this passion to teach? Yeah, I don't know where it came from. I don't come from a family of teachers or anything like that. It's funny because I have a very good friend who's still with Starbucks and she's in corporate management now. But it's funny because we always joke, I didn't like managing at all, but I loved teaching and training and helping people learn. It's just something that I've always enjoyed. She was the complete opposite. So that's where that joke comes from. But I don't know. I I can't answer that. I, I think that it's partly how I think I tend to and I get in trouble for this at home, but I'm always trying to figure out how to solve something or how to break down something into parts. Mm -hmm. And so training and, and teaching has always come naturally because I can dissect something and, and figure out how to make it understandable. So that's the only thing I, it's just, it's just something I've always gravitated towards. Have you had any mentors or anyone that's kind of helped you out along the way? No, I always wish I I had. <laughs> I always wish I had. Everything that I've learned, I have stumbled. I am not a fast learner at anything. Everything has taken me time. And so I have a soft spot in my heart for people who are out there feeling like they're they're failing, they're not getting it. It's it just takes time for the for most people unless you have a network of you know, people with access and and privilege who can help you jump over everyone else. Mm -hmm. For most people, it's going to take some time. For me, you know, it took me a while to say, okay, instructional design, that is what I need to do. And once I got there, then it was much smoother. But I haven't had any big mentors. I've had peers who have helped. I have a mastermind group now, but I can't say that I've ever had a mentor and I always wanted that, but it just never happened. I mean, aside from like what you just said, what is it that has kept you motivated and inspired then to continue? I've never thought about that. I'm very self-driven and I just like to push myself. I like to challenge myself. The other thing, I don't want to make this like a, be a downer, but the other thing is, it's a story that I've only shared one other time publicly, but I'll go ahead and tell it. I was an honor student in throughout all of middle school, high school, elementary school. And I got into every college that I applied to. I got in and I chose to go to Spelman University. And two weeks after I graduated high school, 
my parents said that they couldn't afford to send me to Spelman. Mm -hmm. That was a big turning point for me because at that point, I realized that I was on my own. Yeah. You know, I had to figure things out. And that's how I ended up at Georgia State University. And so I would say from then on, I just always knew I had to push myself. I had to figure this thing out. So if I look back at anything and say, maybe that was a blessing in disguise, but that is what has always pushed me. Nobody else. I just always have this in the back of my head. And I don't know if it's healthy or not, but I just always feel nobody else is going to do it for me. I have to figure this out. I agree with that in terms of that that sentiment. You know, nobody is going to, well, I don't want to say nobody, but <laughs> you're, right. I mean, as entrepreneurs, we know that we have to be the driving forces behind our business. We yeah. have to be the ones that are going out there every day because it's, it's us. The business is us, what we do. And so if you're not the one that's out there putting yourself out there in some kind of way, if you're not hunting down the business, et cetera, like it's not necessarily going to just come to you. Exactly. Exactly. You know, like I said, I don't know if it's healthy or not, but that is always stuck with me. Yeah. Like you have to be the, the driving force. You have to be the person that is tooting your own horn really. Yeah. So absolutely. I, I, I think that's something that just all entrepreneurs end up realizing at some point in time, unless I don't know, they have the, <laughs> the capacity to hire a business development person or something, but even still, your business is you. You started it. And so yeah. you're kind of still the spokesperson for it. So, I mean, I don't I mean, I'm not one to say whether it's it's healthy or not, but I understand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's like I have this. I don't want to say a monkey on my back, but I don't know what the phrase is. I'm so bad with like remembering phrases, but it's just always this something that sits there and, and is like, you've got to make this happen. At the end of the day, it's just up to you. What has been the most useful career advice that you've gotten? I would say the most useful career advice really isn't career advice. And it's it's just about finding balance in life and, and doing the things that you enjoy, but also realizing that, you know, what you might feel is a passion doesn't necessarily have to be something that you get paid to do. And that's something I've been focusing on lately. I tell some people know this about me, but I DJ and that is my my passion. Okay. I absolutely love it. For me, I've always been a person who has been in the create like in music. And I like I said, I studied creative writing. And so finding that balance and being at peace with this is one part of me, but it's not all of me. Mm -hmm. And being able to balance that out with other forms of expression, that's probably been the thing that has kept me sane you know, <laughs> when I'm juggling all these different things and working with clients and building courses, knowing that I have that outlet. So I'm not sure if that's advice, but it's definitely been something that's kept me kept me moving. No, that's great advice. That's that's great advice, because I think sometimes, you know, and I've had designers on the show before and I've asked that question, they still will do other designery type things in their downtime. And it's like it still flexes that same muscle in a way. Yeah. But you know, if you're doing something that is totally different, like some people have said, you know, they do woodworking, they do paper crafting, they do a bunch of other things. Yeah. And like with DJing, it's it's totally not. I guess you're learning in some way, like you're teaching the people on the dance floor. But I mean, you're learning, I guess, a different skill set or you're you're applying your 
I don't know if I'm saying it right, but you know what I mean. Basically, yeah. it is that outlet. It's something else that you can do that's not sitting in front of a computer screen, making exactly. courses, get yeah. out and mingle with people. It's a very social thing. Everyone loves DJs. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so I have to ask some DJ questions since you brought it up. <laughs> so what do you have a DJ name? Yeah, I go by Blackbird. Okay, DJ Black, just DJ Blackbird or Blackbird. Either either one is fine. Okay, all right. What what type of music do you spin? I've been spinning a lot of classic hip hop, so '90s and and 2000s hip hop. We're kind of at that point where 2000s are becoming the old school hip hop. So, oh man, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's happening. It's happening. So, uh, I've been spinning a lot of that, but I I really love. Actually, when I was at Georgia State, I hosted a radio show called Soul Kitchen. Um, Shut and, up. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. WRAS 88.5. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Get out of here. Yeah. So that was my first. That venture. was you. I was oh I was in God. it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's dope. That's dope. <laughs> and so soul and funk, that's my heart. And uh-huh. and I don't get to spin much of that lately, but I've I've just started committing to getting back to like that. Those are the roots. So um, I'm, if you've heard of DJ Applejack, he's in Atlanta. Yeah, uh-huh. he was the very first DJ who kind of told me, show, talked to me about digging in the crates and doing all of that stuff. And for some reason, I never really took to it i didn't really i didn't dj when i was in atlanta it wasn't until i got to chicago uh-huh. that i dj'd so yeah that's what i i like what appeals to you about dj i've always loved music i've always I'm trying to think back when it started probably middle school i would make mixtapes for i'm i'm dating myself but back when <laughs> cassette tapes i would make mixtapes for my friends i would stay up and listen to songs and you could cue it up so that, you know, and I would just, I would do that. And I, it was just something that I did. And then fast forward to CDs and I would do the same thing. And I've just always been drawn to music. I used to MC when I got, when I was at Georgia State University, I was just involved with a hip hop group called Nomadic Cyphers. I've always been into music. So this is just, but I never knew, I didn't know much about DJing, mm-hmm. even when I didn't know any DJs other than Applejack and I didn't meet him until years later. So it was never something that was in my face where I thought, okay, I'm making mixtapes and mixed CDs that translates to being on the ones and twos. Mm -hmm. I never put the two and two together until I got to Chicago. I know it's just funny how life works, but, but yeah. What's one track that never gets old for you? Like no matter how many times you hear it, how many times you spin it? What track is that? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. This is hard. This is hard. It's hard to ask a DJ that question. Um, you can name a few if, if there's more than one. There are a few tracks. There's one that's coming to mind right now is a, a track with Roberta Flack. I think Stevie Wonder did some of the writing. It's called I Can See the Sun in Late December. It's a beautiful song. Mm-hmm. Beautiful song. Also. I would say from a hip hop standpoint, anything from Biggie, anything from Biggie, Life After Death or Ready to Die. But also from going back to a soul standpoint, Curtis Mayfield, just about anything from Curtis is especially his Short Eyes album. Yeah. 
anything on that. I mean, that's hard. That's hard, Maurice. I can't. (laughs) (laughs) I can't do it. I can't do it. Is there a popular track that's out right now that you just will not play? Like you just can't stand it? I'm not a fan of Rihanna. So some some of your listeners might they might turn (laughs) off right now. I know it's funny, though. A lot of DJs don't. They're not fans. Why is that? I don't know. I didn't even know that. I just knew I wasn't a fan. And my partner loves Rihanna. Uh-huh. And we were having a conversation and the, that song Work came on. And I was like, turn that off, please. Turn <laughs> off. That song is probably one that I just don't want to hear. And it's kind of old right now. But yeah, that's what comes to mind. Rihanna. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll get off the DJ track right yeah, now. That's- um, <laughs> Where do you see yourself in the next five years or so? What do you think you'll be doing? What I'm doing right now is working to build multiple avenues and and streams as far as work is concerned. So what I ultimately want to do is to, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I shut down my agency to focus on Zen courses. And it wasn't until last year that I started consulting again. And so my vision now is to rebuild a a learning design agency and work primarily with mid-sized businesses, be able to connect directly with the business owners and the teams, avoid the bureaucracy and connect with the learners and create online courses that get amazing learning results, but also help to get the business results that those business owners are looking to achieve. So that's the long-term vision now of rebuilding my agency, but doing it in a very intentional way based on the types of people that I like working with. And now just to kind of, you know, wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about, about you, your work, your music? Like where can they find out about that stuff online? <laughs> the best place for them to, to interact with me now is zencourses.co. If they are looking to learn more about online courses, especially if they're freelancers or solo entrepreneurs, definitely check me out at Zen Courses. Again, that's zencourses.co, not .com. That's the best way to reach me on Twitter. I'm at Janelle Allen. And I'm on Instagram. I am at Zen Courses. If you want to check me out on Instagram for my DJ stuff, I'm at DJ Blackbird, B-L-A-K-B-R-D. All right. Sounds good. Well, Janelle Allen, thank you so much for for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing, you know, not just what learning design is, but why it's important. And, you know, also kind of, you know, talking about some of the the things that people need to know about when it comes to building courses. I'm definitely going to be pointing people towards Zen courses that want to really get out there and start, you know, kind of teaching what it is that they know. But It sounds like, you know, you said you had this unconventional path and that you didn't feel like you were a great student in undergrad. But I think that it's that kind of mixture of experiences is what makes you a good teacher now, because you're able to see it, I think, from both ends. You're able to see it from the student end and know what the pitfalls are there. But because of what you've learned in college and from what you've learned from working at other places, you see it from the instructor end also. So you bring kind of this this uh I don't know, this two-pronged approach to learning that I think, you know, what you're doing with Zen courses will help make it a big success. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Maurice. It's been a pleasure. Thoughts of love are in your mind. 
And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Janelle Allen and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Janelle and her work through the links in the show notes at provisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as showing how internal design critiques work, sharing resources about VR and other cutting-edge technology, and by giving away great tools and resources like Origami Studio, popular device templates for Photoshop and Sketch, and even diverse hands for mock-ups. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 15 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to grow sales and make money in their sleep. You know, MailChimp has really grown from being an email service provider to becoming your one-stop place for marketing your business. Get everything you need all in one place and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains. With free private domain registration and your choice of domains across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there, how can you turn that down? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off on your first purchase. Since 2004, SiteGrounds has been empowering web professionals and beginners alike to build better, safer, faster websites easily without having to worry about web hosting. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path to get 60% off on all their hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, please do me a huge favor. Subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two, and it really does help the show out by bumping us up in the iTunes rankings for design podcasts. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Visit us at yepitslunch.com for all your design, strategy, and creative consulting needs. And if you like the work that we're doing here with Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. You know, now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. Pledge levels are super affordable. They start at just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.